Chapter 7 of Life in a Thousand Worlds. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alex Bowie. Life in a Thousand Worlds by William Schuler Harris. Chapter 7 The Water World Visited. As I lingered in the region of the constellation of Centaurus, I was more and more profoundly impressed with the magnitude and variety of created worlds. Among the eighteen planets that revolve around Alpha Centaurus, only six are inhabited. One of these is a sinless world, or a world whereupon sin never inaugurated its blighting reign. But I will say nothing of this orb, as I did not have the choice opportunity of visiting it aright. I saw its beauty only through a glass darkly. I then fixed my mind on Polaris, commonly called the North Star. In journeying thither from Centaurus, I passed thousands of solar systems scattered in space all around me. As I was thus darting through immensity, I glanced toward our own solar system, and could see nothing but a flickering star which was our sun. Not the faintest sign could I see of our world or Jupiter. A strange feeling passed over me when I began to realize how far I was from home. I sped onward until I reached the North Star. It is a burning sun, but not inhabited. Polaris is the center of a magnificent system. If a certain few of its worlds could be seen through a telescope, they would be picturesque in the extreme, somewhat resembling our beautiful Saturn. Moons play like frisky lambs around some of its worlds, and many comets dance through the length of the whole system in richer confusion than we have ever beheld in the range of our telescopic vision. Counting the worlds of larger size only, there are nearly one hundred that fly through their orbits around Polaris, some with amazing velocity. Within the bounds of the solar system I spent considerable time. The third worlds that I visited I will call Staza. It is two hundred millions of miles from Polaris, and is four hundred and fifty times as large as our world. I was amazed at the new turn of life manifestation that I found there. To me it was unusually interesting, because its temperature is quite similar to ours, but the order of life is reversed so completely that the human beings inhabit the water, and the long narrow strips of earth are infested with numerous species of land animals. It may seem incredible that the depths of the ocean should be the seat of intelligence rivaling our own. The human creatures of Staza average a trifle larger in size than we but they travel horizontally in water like a large fish. The limbs support the body in rest, and in traveling are used like the hind legs of a frog, only more gracefully. The arms closely resemble ours, and have an infinite variety of uses. In addition, there are four fin-like arms that fold into the body when at rest, but are spread for service when traveling. In all, it must be admitted that these Taza people are capable of traveling more rapidly and covering longer distances with much less fatigue than are we. They can also carry greater burdens with more ease. They wear no garments except one or two small pieces made of a tough species of seagrass. Five-sixths of Staza are covered with water, and its depth at a few points is very great. Throughout all the water regions there are many kinds of animal life, more than can be found in our oceans. Thousands of human lives have been lost in conflict with the fiercer kinds of these water animals, 
with which the people of Stazah entered upon a war of extermination over one thousand years ago. And while intelligence is slowly winning the battle, yet the warfare is likely to continue many centuries to come, owing to the fact that these hostile fish occupy the soundless depths even as deep as four or five hundred miles, according to our measurement. Horned fish rising from these depths are a horrible menace to excursion parties or caravans, as well as to settlers on what we would call the frontier. The homes of Staza are made of metallic substances. There are a few minerals very plentiful, resembling brass, and it is a common sight to see polished buildings fantastic in their arrangement, shining through the pellucid water like gold. The cities are built on gentle inclines in the deeper waters, and present a picturesque scene. They look more like a cluster of giant fairy abodes than like New York or London. Nothing in all the world of Stazar resembles a product of our manufacture more than the fine screening that protects every human dwelling from an invasion of small water animals. It reminded me of the mosquito netting as a safeguard against flies and other insects of our world. But the mosquito baffles our genius, for he seems to be able to get through as small an opening as air can. Likewise, the pestiferous water animals seem to invade the homes of Stazah, notwithstanding all their efforts at prevention. The cities have no continuous streets or lanes. The principal travel is in the water over the city. The main entrance to the home is on the housetop. In the center of large buildings there is a shaft running up and down, through which the people go with greater ease than we can climb or descend our stairways. It must not be forgotten that the water to them is like air to us, and in their domestic life the people are annoyed by cloudy and muddy currents of water, just as we are by clouds of dust in the air, on the streets, or in our homes. The wear and tear caused by chemical action of water on houses and furniture is not as great as the injury in our world caused by the chemical action of air, heat, and moisture. The educational systems of Stazah are quite as perfect for that world as our own systems are for ours. They have an alphabet, covering their needs in language, consisting of a series of strokes, curves, and angles, somewhat resembling our shorthand systems. This language is identical in print or script, and is superior to our method of expressing thought by handwriting. The experts of Stazah have learned the art of slicing metallic blocks into sheets of any desired thickness. These sheets serve the same purpose for them as paper does for us, and are furnished at an insignificant cost of labor. We have the very elements in our earth to produce these metallic blocks if we knew the combination, which might be easily found if we had as much need for them as the people of this water world. The metallic blocks are used for a great variety of purposes. There are some high-class artists who have immortalized themselves by their masterpieces, one of which I saw on a five-cornered metallic sheet measuring about eight feet in diameter. Perhaps the most surprising feature of the educational advancement of these water spirits is their knowledge of astronomy. To them, under the water, the stars have always looked beautiful, and from an early date in their history, a study of them has engaged the attention of their scholars. No one could tell the style of their telescopes if he should go guessing for a week. Let me give you a brief description of one. They build a metallic pipe about 10 feet in diameter and from a point some 200 feet below the surface of the water. 
The pipe is built until it extends a few feet above water. Inside of this pipe is a series of transparent ovals of various sizes. These ovals are so arranged that the upper one throws its light to the lower one, down through the immense cylinder. Around each oval is built a series of fin protectors, which is the only part about the telescope I could not fully understand. They seem to counteract the refraction of the water, and yet water must be in the pipe to obtain proper results. Imagine an astronomer at the base of this huge metallic structure, having at his fingers' ends a dozen wire strings intricately connected with the oval system, and by the proper use of which he can increase or decrease the magnifying power of this ponderous telescope. The highest magnifying power of a telescope of this size is so great that the Milky Way is penetrated and its solar systems revealed. What an accomplishment it would be if a telescope of this magnitude could be mounted, a thing that these creatures never attempted to do. But they have built telescopes at various inclinations, all stationary. You can form an idea of the patience and endurance of these people when you learn that it requires over fifty years of our time for them to perfect one of these large instruments. Give human brains to any animal underwater or overwater, and it will grasp for larger views of its creator and the things that he made. These people are thoroughly convinced that intelligent life can be found in any world where there is enough water to sustain it. In the waters of Staza there are many undercurrents similar to our Gulf Stream. These are used by the inhabitants for transportation. They construct little hammock cars so that the, when they are filled with human freight they float in the water. A simple device, which we might call a fin propeller, is used to force the car in one direction or another, as necessity may require. It is possible to enter one of these understreams, and thus travel over two thousand miles. Then, by rowing only five miles, enter the return current and move homeward. A car of special design is furnished by each community, in which each bridal pair spends the wedlock ride, or the honeymoon, as we would call it. There is nothing more interesting about this race of beings than the manner in which they pluck land fruit and catch land animals, and yet, when you compare this with our world, it is the same to them as fishing is to us. In all my interstellar journeys, perhaps there was nothing so amusing to me as to see a company of these water creatures fishing for land animals. They would creep up near shore and throw out their wire lines with various kinds of bait, according to what they wished to catch. Then followed the inevitable waiting, until some innocent jalep or pretzel would grasp the tempting morsel on the hook. A skillful jerk fastened the victim, and instead of pulling him into the water, the fisherman held his breath and rushed out of the water to get his prize. This has been found to be a safer method than trying to pull the prize into the water. These water-dwellers relish certain land animals more than we do fish. Of course the land strips are not inhabited by human beings. But vegetation is abundant, similar to that found in our tropical regions. Many kinds of fruit growing on the land are sought after by the masters of the water. In the season when certain fruits are ripe, whole expeditions go out to gather them. But how can they live away from the great body of water while plucking these fruits? Let me tell you how they manage it. They have what we would call water wagons, very wide and short, and equipped with buckets. At the rear of one of these strangely shaped carriages stand four or six men abreast, immersing their heads in the water of the wagon for a fresh breath as often as necessity requires. 
Thus they are enabled to travel over land to any desired locality, always being careful to keep near enough to the water to cover any emergency. When they arrive at the fruit, each man takes his bucket of water and proceeds to work. He plucks fruit or berries for about thirty seconds, and then ducks his head into his bucket of water for a fresh breath. Then he proceeds as before. When the water is no longer fit for breathing, he carries his fruit and water bucket to the wagon. Here he unloads his fruit and refills his bucket from the wagon, proceeding as before. At intervals the wagon must be refilled with water. During a day a few men can gather a large quantity of fruit in this manner, and it can be preserved for over four seasons. On Staza there has been developed a fine variety of water flowers, and no gardens are more beautiful than those that can be seen here. The higher classes of these people live a very refined life, and have their homes surrounded with an endless variety of water grasses and flowers. You would scarcely believe your eyes if you could direct your gaze to a few of these homes. In their religious life, these designs are eminently devoted. They have no bunch of creeds from which to take their choice, but follow the teachings of the great interpreter, a man who once lived and reigned amongst them, and who wrote his laws in what we would call, by interpretation, the Book of Gold. The leaves of this book are made from an element costly and rare, more precious to them than gold is to us. From this book all their sacred books are copied. The civil powers also accept this book as their authority, and enforce its teachings. Sin there, as here, is the withering blast of the planet, the destroyer of the harvest fields of purity and truth. An invisible spirit of evil holds its force in disciplined command, and the man who wishes to have a pure heart and staza must reach it through conflicts long and sharp. The path to moral and spiritual purity is quite the same throughout the whole universe. End of chapter 7 of Life and a Thousand Worlds Read by Alex Bowie NikkiDonuts.com